this is, uh, you know, that negative thought you've been having, and uh, I just, uh, I just can't let you try and change yourself without a fight, so, uh, go ahead and just turn this show off, okay, and, um, uh, yeah, everything's still fine. This is Blindsight with your host, Bill Lundgren, an AINC original podcast. Is serious? We're not holding back truth. We're here to help you heal and become the best you possible. Here's the chair. Here's the pillow. Here's Bill. Hello, everybody. My name is Jonathan Price. I am the podcast producer here, and you are listening to part two of Bill and Nancy's discussion on Usher syndrome. And this is part two. Part one, we discussed uh, phases one through three of what you can be looking for in diagnosing Usher syndrome. So we're going to jump right back into it. I hope you enjoy the show, and we'll see you next week. So, um, so the Usher Syndrome Coalition is your go-to place. Uh, as you mentioned before, you found the coalition, and we have lots of resources for the Usher community. We try to meet once a year, either um, at a different location around the United States, but sometimes we collaborate with international entities to have uh, an international symposium, as we, as we did in 20. 18, I believe we were in uh, Mainz, Germany. Mm. Mm-hmm. And we love to get international researchers together sure. to talk about, you know, who's working on which aspect of Usher syndrome, you know, stopping the vision loss, um, stopping the hearing loss, reversing, whatever. Uh, we had one short time of a clinical trial being run last year. Unfortunately, that had to stop. Nothing to do with the treatment that was going on. It had to do with the regulations around the the uh, data collection and the protocol of, of the study. We're hoping that another entity will pick that up and continue. But, you know, there are many researchers working behind the scenes. Interestingly, there are, as I said before, uh, some who are not interested in research in a cure or treatment they they've reached a point in their life where they have learned how to live well and thrive and Mm -hmm. that's what they're doing that's what they're doing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so the coalition has lots of resources online we have a a private google forum with over 700 people it's basically an email group we have ambassadors around the world, which is an unbelievable core group of volunteers who either have Usher syndrome or have a family member with Usher syndrome, and they are trained and become the point person within their state or country so that we can not only build resources globally, but we want people to know where to go within their own communities to find others, to find doctors who are knowledgeable about Usher syndrome and to just be up on on the latest and get support from the community. Mm -hmm. How did you get involved with the Usher Syndrome Coalition and become, you know, the outreach person? That's a a great question. Um, I did not know about Usher Syndrome when I went to college back in the day. Uh, My training was as a speech pathologist. Oh. And when I graduated, I had my cap and gown on, and I turned to my parents and said, I'm not sure I like this field. I, I I have to look for something else. And I took a year off before going back to grad school because uh, I was certified as a teacher here in New York State. 
And I said, I'd love to learn sign language. So I took an adult ed class in sign language. And the first night, the teacher said, if you want to become skilled, you have to find people to practice with. You can't just stand in front of a mirror and practice sign Mm -hmm. language. Mm -hmm. So as fate would have it, the Helen Keller National Center for Deafblind Youths and Adults here in New York on Long Island had just opened the year before. And they were looking for volunteers. They were starting a volunteer program. I took a ride up thinking, eh, people are deaf, but they're blind too. I don't think they use sign language, but I'm kind of curious. What the heck? And I went in and I met people who are deafblind from all different causes. Usher syndrome, congenital rubella syndrome, charge syndrome, prematurity, aging, etc. And I was, I was in love. I loved I loved the community. I loved the communication diversity. I, I just was so fortunate. So I went back and got my master's in deafblind education at San Francisco State. Oh, really? I worked at, mm-hmm. I worked at Helen Keller until 2015. And then looking for a change, I was so fortunate to move over to the Usher Syndrome Coalition. So I've been there for seven years now. Wow, that's great. I'm glad we have you on board. Oh, thank you. So there's a lot of talk about stem cell research in eye eye treatment. Do do you have have, have you heard anything in terms of of uh, Usher syndrome as treatment for at least the blindness part? And I'm not even sure what it is. Well, well, let me tell you when I came over to the coalition, my background was in training and services, service delivery. Mm -hmm. So we at Helen Keller weren't really looking um, at treatments. We just had people who were already deafblind and how can we best support and serve them? So working at the coalition has been quite an education for me. Uh, And to help anyone understand the latest research that's going on, I'm going to refer you to our website. Because Ah. there's not just stem cell research. There are, uh, you know, gene therapies that are going on that'll make your head spin. Um, So we have a section that is curated um, regularly by some of our um, volunteers who are just so brilliant uh, being able to read the research and kind of translate it so that it makes sense mm-hmm. for the community. And um, so that is on our website. Uh, our website is www.usher-syndrome.org. And there is a tab for research. And I'll tell you, Bill, it has gene-independent approaches, which can benefit anyone. Hmm. clinical trials, natural history studies, and then it breaks it down according to the various genes that cause Usher syndrome. Here's the research on Usher 1B, 1C, 1D, 2A, 2C, etc. So you can look up anything that's going on in Usher research on that page, and they'll describe it way better than I can. Mm Mm-hmm. But well, it's nice to know that there's that much research going on because, uh-huh. in terms of the uh, public's knowledge, even of the syndrome, there isn't as much as as I would like to 
to see. But that's part of the reason you're trying to get people in the da- uh, on the database that these, the coalition has established, get people signed up so that we've got people who are available for research if they're, you know, a volunteer, who would volunteer for some research, right? That is absolutely correct. And I'm glad you brought that up because we um, have actually partnered with a new uh, organization that I'll tell you about in a second. But first, our Ush Trust is our registry, if you will, where we encourage anyone with Usher syndrome to sign up because we will, they will be the first ones to know. We're, we will contact uh, anyone in the Ush Trust if there are opportunities to participate in research. And it's a very simple questionnaire, basically asking for a name, where you live, an email address. And now we're going to be collecting a little bit more demographic information because in addition to research, we also want to connect the community. And for example, within Colorado, if you had one of the more rare genes and you said, gosh, Nance, I'd like to meet someone with Usher 2C because my sister and I have 2C. We've never met anyone else with 2C. We want to know uh, if, you know, there's a little difference to it or, you know, just identify with our registry. We can find people with 2C and make those connections. Um, so the registry has a, a multi-purpose uh, mm-hmm. facet behind it, not just for research. But we realized uh, with the clinical trial that we were helping to recruit for last year through Procure, P-R-O-Q-R, they were focusing on Usher syndrome type 2A exon 13. We did not have information that specific in our registry. Oh, okay. okay. So we contacted anyone with Usher type 2 who hadn't had genetic testing anyone with Usher type 2A who might have exon 13, they'd have to check their tests. We uh, contacted people who weren't sure, who hadn't had genetic testing yet. Sure. Mm -hmm. But we have been looking for years for a partner that would have a much more rich and vibrant and detailed platform. And we did indeed find that in an organization called Rare X, R-A-R-E hyphen X. Rare X is now part of a larger organization called Global Genes, and their focus is the rare disease community. The Rare X database is, is it's a brand new, free to us, free to you database. You would go into the database, enter your own information, give permission you know, for them to hold on to your information, and they take care of the technology. They take care of making sure they have HIPAA compliance, compliance for people who are in Europe. They make sure that any information that is shared with researchers who are approved, that that information is de-identified, that they can't track you down without your permission. Mm -hmm. So Rare X database goes way more into depth. It's right now um, being flown as it's being built. There are still uh, health surveys that they are developing and adding all the time. And the hope, Bill, is that, for example, um, a researcher who might be looking at, um, let's see, at retinitis pigmentosa could go in and find, oh, my goodness, 
here's people with RP and Usher syndrome. Now, that wouldn't be unusual now. But supposing there was another researcher who was doing research in, say, gastrointestinal issues, because Usher syndrome is based on cilia, those little hair cells. Right. Right. So the cilia are in your ear, the cilia are on the retina, the cilia are in the gut. Um, we had some individuals who say, I have, um, you know, problems with irritable bowel syndrome, irritable bowel disease. Is that related to Usher syndrome? And we've never been able to answer that question. So if people with Usher syndrome enter their information into the RAREX database, and a researcher who doesn't know anything about Usher syndrome, but knows about GI issues, comes in and does a little search and says to Rarex, oh, I found all of these people who have GI issues, but it looks like they also have Usher syndrome. Would you be able to reach out to them on my I behalf? See. Okay, so mm -hmm. it's opening up the doors to other areas to either refute or say, yes, this is something we want to look into. Hmm. Because quite honestly, Usher syndrome as a unique researched identity has not been looked at for very long. The genes, the first gene for Usher syndrome was identified in 1995. And um, Usher 3B, the gene was identified in 2012. So there's still so much to learn. We don't know if there are other disease processes or conditions that are associated with Usher other than people mentioning things anecdotally. Hmm. Well, are there uh, Usher syndrome groups or support groups in individual communities uh, that uh, people, you know, some people for you said there were like 26 people in Colorado who were on the database. Uh, mm -hmm. If those 26 people wanted to uh, meet up with other people with Usher syndrome just to support, because one of the problems <laughs> with hearing loss and vision loss is you feel very, I, speaking for myself, you can, I can feel very isolated even in a crowd of people, because I can't see where people, who's talking and whatever. And, you know, that is, uh, it's very uncomfortable. And as a mental health person as I am, I want to build bridges to get people out of the isolation. And I, I, I'm always looking for ways that I can get people to uh, be able to be themselves and to be with other people who know what they're going through, or at least have a sense of what they're going through, if they haven't built those communities uh, with non-usher people. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a great question and very timely, Bill. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we have an annual Ush Connections conference, but uh, in 2023, we're going to try something different. Uh, we've decided to alternate our international conferences to every other year. And so we'll have one in 2024 in, uh, in Rochester, New York. But this year, we're asking our ambassadors to uh, pull together 
some type of an event for their local usher community, oh. just as you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So in the states where we have an ambassador, we're encouraging them to either work with their Helen Keller National Center regional rep, with their state deafblind children's project, which often has money to bring families together. And we had uh, an event like that just last week in in Arizona. And some other states are already uh, have that in the works, already planning that. In states that are quite large or where there are a lot of people in maybe a rural setting, right. mm-hmm. we're encouraging ambassadors to set up a Zoom call. We have a a Zoom account for all of our ambassadors to use. And for example, the young adults, 18 to 30, they've created their own little Facebook group and they offer uh, monthly or bi-monthly Zoom calls to get together because not everyone has the travel skills to get to a central location, right? So Mm -hmm. even if we could find the 26 people and email them, which would be certainly simple enough for us to do, um, some people may be in, you know, Glenwood Springs, Aurora, wherever. Uh, so a simple Zoom call might might be a great way for people to get to know each other. So that's what our ambassadors are asked to to do. And even if two neighboring states wanted to work together, that would be fine. Um, or some are pull, pulling together a Facebook group just for their state. How do, for those who are the type one, that is severe, <laughs> severe hearing and, uh, of course, and, and the vision loss, uh, uh-huh. the communication skills by Zoom, that sounds yes. a little tricky to me. So that, yes, it is, a, it, it is tricky um, in terms of finding a, a tactile sign language interpreter who would be able to participate in the call along with the individual who is a tactile I see. Yeah, got you. In other words, have somebody with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or if the individual who's deafblind knows Braille, they would be able to connect a Braille, refreshable Braille display to their computer. And if there was a text chat going on, then they would be able to fully uh, involve themselves with that. The one of the differences I'm feeling as an older person who's been through all of this is uh, a, a great deal of gratitude at how much the field has changed. Mm-hmm. You know, the coalition obviously has been a big piece of that, but you know, we don't have to feel isolated. We don't have to feel uh, like we're missing out. That there, there are things, but we have to step forward and identify ourselves, which is difficult for some, you know, for some people to, you know, like be on the database or whatever, and and say, okay, because we're so used to, or speaking for myself, I'm so used to, you know, the the thing of taking care of myself, you know, the John Wayne syndrome, you know, <laughs> you you go and. <laughs> You know, find a way to do it, but we don't have to yes. work that hard. Yes, and and what I've what I've been told, and I consider myself a steward of information from so many individuals who have who have trusted me to 
hear their story and share it in ways that might help others. So we have, um, there are people out there who don't want to be publicly identified and who are just, you know, living their lives, um, knowing the diagnosis, if you will. But we have others who embrace it and are proud of their deafblind identity. Um, I would say that in the years I've been involved in this community, technology has made the greatest change in individuals' lives. And there is a wonderful program funded by your tax dollars through the federal government called the National Deafblind Equipment Distribution Program, uh, NDEDP. It's more commonly known as ICanConnect.org. The federal government gives, I believe it's up to $10 million a year to the 50 states and territories. The money is managed by a central entity that applies for the funding. And what that money covers is for a, 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 an evaluator to meet with the deafblind person to see if they could benefit from a device or equipment. And this is all with the goal of improving telecommunication functioning. Mm-hmm. You know, so they get evaluated. They, they are, are recommendations for equipment and they get free equipment through this program as long as they meet two criteria. One is that they are deafblind according to the Helen Keller National Center definition of deafblind. And number two is that their salary or income meets um, certain criteria. Right. <laughs> I believe it's four times the poverty level. But this has been a game changer, as have um, devices through all the major phone companies, the mobile phones, tablets, computers have become much more accessible. Websites are working towards accessibility image descriptions, captions, audio descriptions, uh, text uh, downloads. You know, uh, uh, this this podcast is great for people who can hear, but it would be great if there could also be a an accompanying text transcript so that a mm-hmm. person who's deafblind could then read that on their Braille display or someone who is deaf could read that. Mm-hmm. That's a good you know? thought. So, mm-hmm. Yep. So all of the technology has really brought the world together. The fact that we're on a virtual platform talking with each other a thousand miles apart is just kind of mind blowing. Tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) Every day I'm amazed, you know, that I'm actually doing this. But uh, I also just happened today to get something from the coalition about uh, some con- uh, contribution is being shifted. Amazon was giving money uh, yes. as a result of sales. Is that correct? And then yes. now there's uh-huh. some other, or- they're, they're stopping that, but some other organizations, some of the companies are giving, what, a portion of the profit to what? Uh, I can only speak for Amazon in that they gave a percentage of your your purchase if you signed in as smile.amazon yeah okay so yes my understanding is this it's similar i am only hearing about it as you are so i'm not sure if you have to use certain vendors or if it's a oh here it is amazon smile yeah well one yeah apparently Uh, Mm -hmm. 
According to yep. the memo I got today, the smiles is stopping uh, mid-February, yes. but they mm-hmm. mentioned Chewy is one of the uh, companies that uh, you know is is either currently or will be currently doing it, and that's where I buy my uh, guide dog dog food at, at Chewy. So I, I can definitely contact them to be on the on the list to have contributions go to the coalition. Beautiful. And it's it's a painless way. You know, it doesn't come out of your pocket, if you will. It comes out of your the goodness of your heart. And yeah, that's great. Yeah, we were disappointed to hear about Amazon Smile. Yeah. But yeah, someone else stepping up to the plate. And we are, you know, we are a small nonprofit. Um, we are funded basically by the community. Uh, every once in a while, we do get a grant opportunity. Uh, we certainly open to more grants, et cetera, but we have a huge job with our international work and building the community. And there are um, four of us working out of the main uh, office, if you will. I mean, no one is physically in an office anymore, but yeah. Wow. So. I didn't realize it was just four people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Two part-time and two full-time. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Is there anything that, from from your vantage point, uh, what do you hope for for the future? Uh, for the future, my hope is what my my dear friend Joe McNulty, who was the executive director of Helen Keller for many years, uh, Joe passed a year and a half ago, oh, mm-hmm. and he was. Um, a tremendous leader, and he was quite honest in what we should be doing, and I believe the coalition has a similar philosophy, and that is to put ourselves out of business. We want the community to have all the resources they need, to have access to all the information they need, to have all the support that they need. So I think that's probably my hope as well. Great. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you today. I certainly, even though I've had Usher syndrome and dealt with it, I've learned a lot from what you've shared today, and I hope that our listeners have have also learned. And how do we get, how do people get in touch to sign up for the uh, data bank if they want to? So if you go to our website, we have links uh, to the Rarex uh, data collection platform. We have links to our Ush Trust registry, and we will be maintaining both of those. They each have their own function that is separate and unique and important. So once again, I'll give you our uh, web address. It's www.usher-syndrome, S-Y-N-D, R-O-M-E dot org, or you may email either me or our generic uh, email address, which is info, I-N-F-O at usher hyphen syndrome dot org, or if you want to reach me, it's Nancy O'Donnell at N dot O-D-O-N-N-E-L-L at usher hyphen syndrome dot org. Great. 
And for those who want uh, to uh, contribute ideas to this podcast or have some thoughts or questions, uh, please do not hesitate to contact us. Uh, I, right now, I'm not remembering our email, but uh, if, if you go on our website, you'll be able to find some ways to contact us and, and let us know what you need. And, uh, you know, blindness, hearing loss, these are isolating conditions, can be isolating conditions, and it, it's on us to keep it from isolating us and to reach out to one another and support one another. And that's part of what I hear from the uh, Usher Syndrome Coalition and certainly from AIN of Colorado. So thank you, Nancy, for being on today. A sign off to our audience. I hope you have benefited from it. You can give us some feedback. And so this is Bill Lundgren signing off for Audio Information Network of Colorado. Have a great week.